Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, what would you do if some neighborhood bullies were threatening you and your family? Imagine for a moment there was no police force, no government, and no guns. It was just you and your family living in a community with other people. And some of those people banded together, big, tough, mean, fighters, and came around to your house and smashed your furniture, stole some of your goods, and slapped you around a little, all the while breathing threats. You were outnumbered, helpless, and defenseless. You have no way to protect yourself and no friends to stand with you against these bullies. And this isn't a Hollywood movie where some hero will come out of nowhere to help. No, this is a real life or death situation. The bullies leave you with this choice. If you don't pay $5,000 every month, we'll be back to deal with you permanently and take everything you own, including your family members. Pay up and stay safe or lose everything. Pretty desperate situation, isn't it? It's hard for us to imagine here in Canada, but this is exactly what Hezekiah was facing when he became king over Judah. The neighborhood bullies were the Assyrians. They had the biggest, the best, the fiercest army, and they were terrorizing all the smaller nations around them, including Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, had agreed to pay regular tribute, pay them silver and gold. We would call it extortion money today, in order to keep the peace. Ahaz had taken from the royal treasury and even stripped a lot of gold from the temple to keep Tiglath-Pileser happy. But it was getting harder to come up with the money year after year. This was Hezekiah's conundrum when he became to the throne. Judah was being threatened like a slave in their own, country, in their own land, and it was galling and frustrating, very humiliating, but also very scary because these dudes, these Assyrians, did not fool around. The army of Judah was no match for the Assyrians and their threat hung like a sword dangling over the entire kingdom. The choice was awful. More slavery for Judah and impoverishment or risk total war and annihilation? What's it gonna be? Tell me, brothers and sisters, which would you choose in such a situation? Pay or fight and take your chances? What would you have done in Hezekiah's shoes? Well, to our surprise, Hezekiah does neither. By grace, he opts for a third choice, a better choice. He doesn't focus on the troubles, but sets his attention on the Savior from the troubles. That's how he starts his kingship. I bring you the word of the Lord. The Lord's servant sparks reformation. He does so with a call to repentance and a call to worship. We saw last time that the first act of Hezekiah's reign was to open the temple doors. And now in our text, we see him give orders to cleanse the temple. And if you take a sneak peek at the rest of chapter 29 and all of chapter 30, and all of chapter 31, 
we see that the king pursues the same line of cleansing the temple like a dog with a, on a bone. He orders the Levites and priests to consecrate themselves. Once the temple is ready, he begins offering sacrifices again, and the people follow suit. In chapter 30, Hezekiah orchestrates a massive, doubly long celebration, two weeks for the Passover. And finally, in chapter 31, he carefully organizes the priests and the Levites so they can faithfully get about their business like the Lord had instructed. Hezekiah was busy with all this for at least the first six months of his reign, and not a word was mentioned about the Assyrian Empire and the threat they imposed at his doorstep. And it wasn't as if there was an idle threat or that Assyria had become weak, for it was only a few years earlier that the Assyrians had come and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Just imagine, all your family and friends to the north were gone. That's what happened. We read about that in 2 Kings 17. Remember, the chronicler assumes his readers know the history from Kings. He does not repeat it. While Father, while Father Ahaz was king and Hezekiah was learning the ropes by his side in the year 725 BC, Shalemezer, the new king of Assyria after Tiglath, swept into the north and decimated the towns and villages. He then set siege to the capital city of Samaria. And after three years of choking off its supplies, the Assyrians captured the city. Those they did not kill, they deported far away to the land of the Assyrians. In the year 722, this was the end of the ten tribes. Many were slaughtered. The rest were exiled to Assyria. Israel was no more. And Hezekiah witnessed all this. So why doesn't Hezekiah do something to meet this great threat? He became king only seven years later after Assyria is just as powerful. Shouldn't he make an alliance with other powers like Egypt, perhaps? Shouldn't he be raising up an army within Judah to defend the nation? Why concern yourself with priests and Levites and sacrifices when what you need are soldiers and mercenaries and weapons? Why repair the temple when what you need are fortifications and outposts? And yet, brothers and sisters, by faith, Hezekiah saw the real need for the hour was for Judah to return to her God. He understood that Israel's fate had come about because they had abandoned the Lord, as we read in Kings. All this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And it wasn't just the ten northern tribes who were guilty of this. We read last time in chapter 28 how in the days of King Ahaz, the people of Judah had also turned to idol worship and had done all the wicked things the northern tribes had done. In fact, before God sent the Assyrians to exile the ten tribes, he sent out other nations to exile parts of Judah. And so the threat of God's further punishment was every bit as urgent as in Hezekiah's days as it was in Ahaz's days. <clears throat> Hezekiah understood all this. The real problem wasn't out there in the Assyrian army. It was in Judah's heart. 
He says it plainly to the Levites in chapter 29, verse 6. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have taken away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. The Assyrian army may be just around the corner, but the greatest need of the hour is not a military operation, but a spiritual reformation. If we don't get it right with God, the battle is already over and we are finished. Do we understand that for our own lives too, brothers and sisters? If we don't repent our sin and if we don't turn our hearts to the Lord every day, if we just keep living a sinful lifestyle of our own liking, but which offends God, don't we see that it's only a matter of time before the Assyrians will come for us? Before God sends a punishing hand of something or someone else into our life? I want you to think for a moment of people you know who have turned their back on God. Just think of those people. How has their life turned out? Has the blessing of the Lord been upon them? I think you will find on the whole that the hand of the Lord has been against them and their life has not gone well and is empty of true joy, true salome, and true contentment. That they are spiritual exiles. And unless we repent daily, we will be just like them. Make no mistake, these passages in Scripture are for our warning too. These were church members, ten tribes worth, wiped out. That's why the Lord sends his servant Hezekiah to call his people to repentance, beginning with the Levites in verse 4. Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. Why does he approach the Levites and not say, the elders of the land? He starts with the Levites. Why? Because they are the church leaders. The Levites include the priests. The Levites, including the priests, are responsible to shepherd the people in true worship of the Lord. They were given the command to instruct the people in God's law, and the priests would offer sacrifices and incense for the people, and they would pray for the people. These are spiritual leaders of the nation. Reformation has to start with the leadership. If they don't have a change of heart, how will the people they are leading have a change of heart? Brothers elders, brothers deacons, this is a point worth remembering. The spiritual state of the congregation is reflected in the spiritual state of the office bearers. Can we expect Grace Church to be on fire for the Lord if we are not? Can we expect the brothers and sisters to be faithful and true if we do not lead by example? When you become an office bearer, it's not just about executing your duties well, but behind that must be a life that is lived close to the Lord, a heart that loves God and His people, that will shine through and stimulate the congregation to follow suit. 
What's true for church leaders is equally true for our leaders in our homes, the men in our midst, especially the husbands and fathers. In certain cases, mothers, where there is no father. How is it, men? Can you really expect your children to grow up Christian if you yourself are not leading the way? You know we can get sloppy in our Christian walk. As we get older, sometimes we get tired of being the leader of the family. We get tired of carrying and shoulder the responsibilities and even find it easier to let things slide or maybe let our wives handle it. Our natural laziness kicks in and we drop off personal devotions. We half-heartedly go through the motions of family worship, of corporate worship on Sundays, and keep our conversations with our children limited to work, sports, entertainment, or the weather. Serving the Lord, loving the Lord, are not things we are passionate about, so we don't talk about them to our kids. The Levites, the Levites had done that sort of thing over time. Hezekiah tells them to consecrate themselves, which means they had to let themselves become they had let themselves become unclean, impure. They were still Levites and priests according to their office, but they had not acted like priests and Levites should act. We can be husbands and fathers, but are we acting like dads should act? Brothers, if that's been happening to us as husbands and fathers today, let us repent and make a change. Even as a grandfather, if you look back on how you raised your children and influenced your grandchildren, and you look back and you realize you slipped and have not been passionate to serve the Lord, not been that good example for your sons and daughters, then confess that to the Lord in prayer and today start anew and make a difference. A father and grandfather who turns his heart to the Lord can still be a great blessing to his family. Don't put it off, brothers. For that is what Hezekiah himself was doing. He himself was grieved by all the wickedness his father Ahaz had brought among the people. But in humility, he takes ownership of his father's sins and that of the nation. As the leader of the nation, he is leading by example, by confessing the nation's guilt and pledging himself to renewed loyalty to the Lord. Verse 10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. The political situation is dire because the spiritual situation is dire. And so the Lord's servant humbly leads a heart change among the people and seeks the mercy of the Lord. Can you see Christ in the outline of King Hezekiah? A foreshadowing? Like Hezekiah, Christ was grieved by the sins of the people and took ownership of those sins even upon himself. During his ministry, he called God's people to give their hearts to the Lord in true repentance. He did everything he could in order to turn away from the nation the fierce anger of their covenant God, even taking their guilt upon himself and letting that anger fall on him on the cross. The heart of King Jesus was for the Lord and for his people even more than that of King Hezekiah. 
trust him and follow him. If we love King Hezekiah, if we love King Jesus, then forgiveness of sins is ours, and we'll want to become like our king in every way. Follow in his footsteps. A reformation is sparked with a call to repentance, and then it continues with a call to worship. Our second point. This call of worship is kind of wrapped up in the call of, to repentance. The reason Hezekiah commands the consecration of both the Levites and the temple is so that proper worship of the Lord can begin again. Consecration just means to make holy or to set apart. In the law of Moses, the Lord had ordered that the tabernacle, later the temple, had to be kept holy. No ceremonial unclean person could enter in no unclean object could enter in. In the same way, the Levites and the priests had to keep themselves holy or clean so that they could offer acceptable sacrifices on the altar and do all the work of the ministry in the temple. <clears throat> That's the goal Hezekiah is shooting for. In verse 11, My sons, do not be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. I'm calling you to repent so that you get about the business of worshiping the Lord. And that's what life is all about, isn't it, brothers and sisters? This is the very reason God created man in the beginning and the very reason God promised to save us from our sins so that we could live holy fellowship with our God. Take that away and you don't have life. You might have a pumping heart and a consciousness, and your life might be filled with all kinds of activities and even the temporary pleasures of a good time, but it will have no meaning and no purpose and no future. It's all a hollow, empty, copycat life. True living, as Jesus would later say, is to know the only true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. John 17, verse 3. That's got to be the heartbeat of our life. And when it is, then life is good. And we experience contentment. And it's filled with shalom, even in the difficulties of life, because it is good with God. Then reformation and true worship, those are the things we embrace, and those are the things we love, those are the things we seek out because we see and experience in them life. And the Levites figured that out. The chronicler describes their response to Hezekiah's call in verse 12 and following, where he mentions 14 personal names of the Levites. Mahath, Joel, Kish, Azariah, Joah, Eden, Shimri, Jewel, Zechariah, Mataniah, Jehuel, Shimei, Shemaiah, and Israel. He takes pains to mention 14 names. You notice that habit of the inspired chronicler over and over to mention names of specific individuals in his history. In fact, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles is all about names. 
And sometimes we can get impatient with all those names, can't we? We don't know how to pronounce half of them. And we wonder, why all these names? Why not just speak in generalities? What does it matter that we, that we know these 14 names? Well, brothers and sisters, would it matter if you saw your name on that list? With every personal name, the Holy Spirit is reminding you and me that God knows all of us by name and is busy with each of us personally. He is saving a people, a holy nation. But every single person has a role to play in the work and call of worship. If God knows, for example, in the Old Testament, Joshua the son of Nun, then he knows Joshua the son of Doug. And he knows Joshua the son of Clarence. And he knows Joshua the son of Jordan. And if he knows in the New Testament, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, then he knows Matthew, the son of John. And he knows Matthew, son of James. And he knows Matthew, son of Henry. Then we know the Lord our God calls each of us personally to repentance and worship. Those names remind us it's a personal relationship with him. Take up the call, beloved. For those 14 men were leaders in the clans of the Levites, and they wasted no time. Verse 15. They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Hezekiah gave the order, and the Levites said to each other, Let's go. No hesitation, no discussion. They understood, they were convicted, and they said, let's go. That's the spirit God is looking for. They recognized their sin and negligence, and they heard the voice of their God calling through their king, and their hearts are turned towards him. Let's go. They first consecrate themselves, and then they set about cleaning out the temple courts for all the, from all the idols of Ahaz and trash and whatever impurities there were, and they burned it all down in the garbage dump in the Kidron Valley. Doesn't that, doesn't that make you think of our Savior when he came to the temple in the early days of his ministry? The temple had become a place of commerce, a place of selling animals and make money. But in zeal for the Father's house, the Lord Jesus made a whip of cords and drove out animals and overturned the coins of the money changers. Take these things away, and do not make my father's house a house of trade. John 2, verse 16. This is the Lord's house, a house of worship, and worship is what must go on here. Take it all away. Hezekiah foreshadows that work of Christ, as well as the Levites. The Levites were hard at work and diligently cleaning the temple. Our passage tells us, that they had worked eight days straight to clean up the outer carts. So they were working from the outside in. And then another eight days to clean up the interior of the temple. I'd like you to notice that they worked for 16 days straight. That means right through the Sabbath day. 
two of them, in fact. There was no resting on the Sabbath. In fact, there can be no rest on the Sabbath day if the church doors are closed and no sacrifice is made for sins. In such a desperate situation, the Sabbath thing to do was to work ceaselessly in cleaning and sanctifying and reforming the church. Why? So that true worship can start again and true rest could start again. That was the goal of Hezekiah and all the Levites as they report to the king. Verse 19. All the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have now made ready and concentrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Notice that word, behold. In Scripture, this is a word that is this is a word to add an extra emphasis. Behold, everything is ready. Inside the most holy place and the holy place, all has been sanctified. And outside the altar of burnt offering, everything, O king, is ready to go. The deformation of our, of our forefathers have been swept away, and true worship can begin again. Hezekiah and the Levites and Jesus went to the source of all their troubles and ours, sin and rebellion of the people. And Jesus dealt with this most decisively when he took away our sin. Brothers and sisters, let us go to the source of our troubles too, in our personal lives, in our families, in our congregation, and in the federation of churches. Where there is sin remaining, let us cleanse it out through confession and change. Where deformation has crept in, let us labor to reform. Where serving the Lord has become half-hearted, let us heed the call and repent and worship the Lord with our entire heart, our entire soul, and our entire mind. That is what God is looking for. Amen.